Before we begin today's episode of The Seismic Shift, I just wanted to let you all know that our guest, Dr. Mark Goulston, passed away only a few weeks after we recorded this episode. And so this episode is a dedication to him as a beautiful, beautiful human. His mantra in the world was to help everyone reach their full potential. And he truly tried to do that in every interaction. Anytime Mark and I talked at the very end of the call, he would say, do you have a couple minutes? And he would truly see me and try to understand and ask questions. How are you really? How are you doing? How can I help? He wanted to help everybody. And so besides writing the top book on listening called Just Listen, and besides coming up with an approach for surgical empathy, which prevented suicides for 35 years while he was a psychiatrist, he was affiliated with UCLA, he was an FBI hostage negotiator, all of those things, and an incredible career. But what I really want to dedicate this episode to is this beautiful spirit of helping others meaningfully connect with their purpose, with their passion, and with their potential. Thank you, Dr. Mark. If you go out and meet your friends and they ask you, how's your company? How's your work? And, you, and if you say to them, I can't wait to go to work. If they don't feel that way about their company, they're going to say, are you hiring? <laughs> so we're actually going to use this way to attract new talent. Welcome to the Seismic Shift Podcast. I am so excited to introduce you today to Dr. Mark, Dr. Mark Goulston. I call him Dr. Mark. He's a world-renowned psychiatrist who is truly making a difference in this world. He and I have had such meaningful conversations where he has a true, true gift of making you feel seen, heard, valued, appreciated, respected, just in having a one-on-one -on -one with him. He wrote the number one book on listening called Just Listen. He has, he has really figured out empathy and he calls it surgical empathy. And so today I want to explore with Dr. Mark how in the world, what these seismic shifts are that are happening in the world. How can we harness them for the leaders who are listening? And how can we as humans create cultures of connection? Welcome, Dr. Mark. I'm so glad to be joining you. Really looking forward to this. So let's talk about seismic shifts. We've worked together for a number of years now. You really are one of the best communicators and listeners that I've ever met. Let's talk about some of the seismic shifts that you're seeing in the world. And let's dive into how can we help leaders be the very best versions of themselves right now? Well, I'll share something with you because I think I've discovered the cause of burnout and the antidote to it. So if you're a leader, you're probably concerned about burnout in your people and in yourself. And so I'm going to share something that I think is a fresh take on it. I am a psychiatrist. I'm a bit of a neuroscientist. So I hope this uh, doesn't cause your audience to gag with, oh, not some more science. I wasn't that good in that subject. Uh, but some of you were. So here's what I'm going to lay on you is when people are stressed out, their cortisol goes up. So I think many of you know that that's true. When your cortisol goes up, 
it tickles something in your brain called your amygdala. And uh, when your amygdala is overstimulated by stress and high cortisol, it wants to hijack you away from being able to think. So picture this. You're under stress. Your people are under stress. Think of first responders. Think of the military. And what happens is there you are with all this high cortisol. You basically want to fight or flee, but you're duty-bound, and it's tough to concentrate. And so, so what happens is you get burned out because your cortisol makes you not want to think. It makes you want to run or fight, which is not really a good thing to do. And uh, and so it's good, yes, to meditate, to do yoga and those things. But the real antidote to high cortisol is high oxytocin. And oxytocin is the hormone of emotional connectedness. And so... If you want to counteract burnout, what you want to do is help your company and your people to connect emotionally because when you're burned out, it's the last thing you want to do. You just want to get through the day, get home, you know, down a couple beers or maybe more. And then it's Groundhog Day the next day. Um, and I'll share a proof of, a proof of concept. I have a good friend named Simon Leslie. He was formerly the uh, one of the co-CEOs of Inc. Global, and they used to produce all most of the airline magazines. So they took a hit during the pandemic because magazines went away. People didn't want to touch those things. And also, it was kind of a tough business anyway. And he was exhausted after being there 20 years, and I think he was burned out. And he's this really larger-than-life, motivational, upbeat person. And he's a Brit. And he said, I'm going to buy myself a soccer team. So he bought a soccer team, Eastbourne Soccer Team. It's not one of the top ones, but it's a professional team. It's, uh, you know, I think one or two rungs below the top. And, uh, and he said, you know, my players are under a lot of stress because we're losing all the time. And he's a motivational person. So he tries to pump them up. And something I said to him is when you try to pump people up who are stressed without lifting them up, it's like putting lipstick on a pain. And uh, and I love Simon. He said, just give me the exercise, Mark. <laughs> so they hadn't been winning. And you can do this with your teams. I said, get them to meet together, have them each share a time in their life that they never thought they would get through, but they did. It should also be a time where somebody in particular helped them, and it should be a person who they can contact. They have their contact information or their next of kin, if this was someone years ago who died. So he does this with his team. And what happens is they use the trifecta of emotional connectedness. When people are sharing the times they went through, they're showing vulnerability, and yet everyone is looking at each other like, you got so much courage, you went through that? 
So vulnerability and courage are the first two rungs of emotional connectedness. But then when they started to talk about people who helped them and what those people did, they got all choked up uh, with gratitude. And the reason we designed it this way was what they were going to do is they were going to send selfies to that person or next of kin, right there in the exercise. And in the selfie, you send something I call a power thank you, which I wrote up uh, for Harvard Business Review some years ago. And a power thank you has three parts. First part is you thank someone for what they did specifically. Now, this person may not remember it because often these people helped a lot of people. But you say, several years ago, I was going through this and you did this for me. Second part of a power thank you is you went out of your way. You didn't have to do it. And you stayed with me uh, until I got through it. And you didn't have to do that. And then the third part of a power thank you is what it personally meant to you. And you may not know it, but you changed my life. You saved my life. You saved my marriage. Uh, and often people are crying when they're doing this. And what happens, and a number of the players sent it to their mothers. And even though they've been thankful, this formal way of doing it really touched the, these people, including their mothers. And a number of them got back these texts saying, I just watched your video five times. I can't stop crying. And what happens is they go out and they win against a much better team. So can you sort of track with that, Michelle, that, uh, that when you can, because they all bonded and they all bonded by showing the, uh, the triad of vulnerability, courage, and gratitude. And so if you're listening in, do this with your teams. Do this with your executives. Uh, I remember years ago, uh, I was called in to work with Deutsche Bank uh, because they were going to go be, be going through a rough time, probably not as rough as what they're going through now. But this was, I'm, I'm not sure how many years ago. And so I met with them on Wall Street, and it's all men in this uh, in this particular group. and. Uh, and I had them do this exercise. And they, at first, they, you know, the arms were crossed. And then when they talked about the hard times uh, they went through, uh, they, these are tough guys, and they started to get choked up. They started to talk about uh, going through cancer, and they never told anybody because we don't talk about that. They talked about their kids on drugs. And, and it's interesting because the head of that unit, uh, I've occasionally been in touch with, and they, you know, they went on their ways and they moved to other banks, other position. And he told me, he said, uh, every now and then I'll run into some people who were in that original group. And they don't remember you, Mark. You know, there's a saying from Maya Angelou, people won't remember. Uh, they may remember what you tell them, but they will never forget how you made them feel. And he says he runs into them and they say, remember the front when the shrink from California came out? 
Oh my gosh. What's wild about this, Mark, is just on Friday, I facilitated an executive retreat and it had been a while since they had all gotten together. And, and I don't think they've ever done. As a matter of fact, this was their first executive offsite. And they were just coming up for air after going through COVID and they had tremendous growth. They just exploded and they just hadn't had any time and they hadn't embedded any time to truly connect at the executive level and go deep. So the first thing I had them do was the exercise of share a significant life event and how you grew from that event, who helped you and how that affected your leadership. And Mark, every single incredibly tough engineer at that table got choked up and and I was crying by the end of it. It was so powerful. And then I had them do gratitude. And then I had them text the person that they were most grateful for. So we are so in alignment. I absolutely believe in the power of connection, of going deep, and it starts with yourself of really not only thinking and preparing and owning one of your struggles, life struggles, but then sharing it with your team and how you grew from that. And just that experience, you're absolutely right. I love that you have this example with the soccer team that then they went out and they won and they had not been winning. So that is a beautiful exclamation point. So yes, we are on the same page. It's all about connection. And I love that the antidote, as you were saying, to burnout is meaningful connection. And we have to spend more time. And so many, as I know you experience it too, you're a coach, you're an author, you're a psychiatrist, and a podcast host. And so many executives give us pushback, right? Like I've got agendas and things I need to accomplish. And yet you're telling us we're supposed to be vulnerable and share these stories, but it really does work. Well, here's a way to break through because, you know, I'm on the soft side of the tracks. I'm a psychiatrist. I have a book on listening and and you want to be able to frame things from their experience. So when I've given talks on listening, you know, they're often rolling their eyes uh, because they were told you got to become a better listener. And this is one of my exercises where I call it the pincer effect. I'd say, think of someone who believes in you, has your back, can be candid with you. You know, that would be a stakeholder a la Marshall Goldsmith's, you know, uh, stakeholder-based coaching. So think of someone and ask them, what would be the positive effect on uh, my leadership, people's regard for me, people's respect for me, and our relationship if I became a better listener, little, moderate, large, you know, and then most of these people with the exercise would say, well, you know, I think uh, moderate. And here's the pincer effect. What has already been the measurable negative effect when you have been at your worst as a listener? When you talked over people, when you talked down to people, when you interrupt people, when you were sarcastic to people. And what happens is they get flashbacks of having done it. And they get quiet. And I say, you know, what would would that person say has been the negative effect on their regard, respect? And they always say, large so, so you want to get them to understand that. And here, here's another way, here's another exercise about connection. And again, I have a feeling that 
we're so we're like tag team. You say, Mark, I've already done that. I'm glad I'm glad to hear that a shrink, you know, validates what I do. Um uh, totally. I you ask, I think if you ask people and say, I want you to tell a story about when someone listened to you, didn't have an agenda, and and totally understood you and had your back. Uh, and so people tell these stories and then you say, how would you like to honor that person? They all raise their hand. And what would be the best way of honoring them? You know, make a lot of money, you know, I mean, that would demonstrate the impact of uh, their relationship to you or the way they related to you. Or would it be something else? And a lot of people, when they can remember that experience, oh, and I'll also ask them, uh, is this going to be one of the top five people you are grateful to at the end of your life? Always is. And so what would be the way to honor them? And they get it, to do to and for others what they did for me. Oh my goodness, that is powerful. You know, it, it reminds me because I spent a lot of time trying to deconstruct and dissect the definition of connection. What does it mean? What does it look like? What does it feel like? What does it sound like? And I came up with those five dimensions, which seem to be pretty universal now. When you truly connect with somebody, do you make them feel seen, heard, valued, respected, and appreciated. What I think is really great about your exercise is that then it's one thing just to tell people, here's the definition of connection. Do you do that? But then think about a time when somebody made you feel seen, heard, valued, respected, appreciated. What did they do? How did that make you feel? And how can you then go and pay it forward? When I was researching my book, The Seismic Shift in Leadership, I really didn't, I mean, I was interviewing all these leaders saying, help me, help me figure out what does connection look like, feel like. And I'll never forget one of the leaders, Pete November, who's the CEO of Auctioner Health. He realized that during a meeting, all of the great leaders that, that he was around spoke a lot more than they listened, and he wanted to be different. He said, I want to conduct my executive meetings by doing the 80-20. I want to listen 80% of the time and speak at the very end 20% of the time. And he started just mixing it up by leaning in with listening, leading in with those servant leadership attributes. And this was before he was CEO. And so then when the other CEO left and the board was looking for somebody, his skills, which you and I both, you know, call soft skills, those are powerful skills now. And that's, I believe, why he was then selected to be the CEO, because I believe that these power skills of showing up as a, as more of a listener rather than a speaker, creating a positive environment, acting more as a servant leader, leaning in with caring, compassion, those are the power skills that are needed by our executives today. I truly believe that. Yeah, I'm going to give you and them an exercise. Uh, I think it's in uh, Just Listen. Uh it's called the Hoover exercise, H-U-V-A. Uh, I don't know if Hoover vacuum's still around, but I probably should say, hey, why don't we, why don't we, you know, you, you could, you could license this, you know, give it uh, with your vacuum cleaners. Uh, or maybe I'll go, just go to Dyson. What can I tell you? But, uh, uh, 
If you do this for a week, it will change your life. Here's the exercise. Pick a conversation each day where your intention is to connect in such a way that the other person leaves feeling that was one of the better conversations I've had in a long time. Uh, as opposed to they're smiling politely because you're a leader and they're feeling this is a waste of my time, but he's the leader or she's the leader. But pick a conversation, and this could be one at home with your spouse or your teenager, and then have the conversation. And from their point of view, on a scale of one to 10, so think of their point of view, how much do they feel heard out by you? That's the H. Do they feel you heard them out? You is how much do they feel on a scale of one to 10 that you understood them? And one of the ways you show understanding is you ask questions. And you ask questions about the the uh, emotionally charged words, the hyperbole, like always, never, awful, uh, or terrific. And when they say that, you pause and you say, say more about the awful. Say more about the terrific. And then I, and then part of surgical empathy is you, they say that and, and you say, what's really going on? And they go and they open up even more. And you don't rush them uh, to get through that. The V is how much do they feel valued by you? And that's when you genuine see, genuinely see something that they've shared with you that uh, impresses you, even amazes you, or uh, you think to yourself, that's really a talent. That's really a skill. And then the final uh, a is how much do they feel you added value? And that might be, have you ever thought of taking what you just told me and, you know, and applying it to this situation? Or, you know, you're really quite amazing. Have you ever thought of either taking a course or teaching a course on what you just told me? And so you grade yourself on all of those and don't beat up on yourself you know, if you didn't do a good job, because most people don't do a good job, this doesn't come naturally. But can you see how uh, you can use that to build a muscle? Yeah. So this is surgical empathy that I really did want to dive in deeper to to share with our leaders some of that, the really questions. You have the five reallys that they could ask in their one-on-one. -on -one. What I'm finding in my new research of how to build a culture of connection and, and what people are doing now, particularly in these remote environments, is they're recognizing that most team meetings virtually are so agenda focused. They hop on the Zoom, somebody's in charge, boop, 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 and then they hop off. And it's very transactional. There's not a whole lot of organic opportunities for meaningful connection. So what we're finding is people then are, and I'm advocating this, I'm sure you are too, is let's schedule 15 minute just personal check-ins. And that's a way you can develop just meaningful connection with others. Just do a 15 minute, hey, I just wanted to touch base. Mark, how you doing? What's going on? And, and so share with our leaders how to use these five reallys 
so that they can they they truly can can understand and see that person. So where the five realies come from is uh, I have a friend of mine. He was the COO of the Marines in the 1990s, and he became the first CEO of the U.S. Intrepid aircraft carrier on the Hudson. And I worked with him on a transition program for returning Marines from 2007 until the Great Recession. We had to stop it because the funding stopped. And I would ask my friend General Marty Steele, what did you talk to these returning Marines about? Because what was the most valuable part of it was their hour and a half one-on-one time with General Marty Steele. And he has one of the rarest uh, Myers-Briggs profiles. I, I forgot what it was. But it's, it's an intuitive leader, and it's one of the rarest ones in the Marines. And, and he would say, you know, and you call, you call each other Marine. So you say, Marine. How's it going? Well, it's different to be in a war zone than to be home, sir. Uh, I understand it's difficult, but what's really going on? Well, you know, you go home, your family really doesn't understand you. Most people who haven't been there don't understand you. No, I understand people don't understand, but what's really going on? And when he got to about the fifth really, they would look at him like a deer in the headlights and say, I did and saw horrible things, sir. And when I close my eyes, I see them more clearly, so I don't close my eyes much, sir. And he gave all of them a direct order. If you've been in a war zone as a Marine, we all saw and did horrible things. You know, the collateral damage of war. Uh, and, And he gave them an order. He said, we've all done that. You've earned the right to a life. And you need to put this aside to, you know, take take that, uh, you know, live that life. And he got letters from spouses saying, you know, you saved my uh, spouse's life. And so using the, the realies can really go deep. Now, now, here's one of the problems for leaders is, is you know, we're rushed for time. Uh, also, what if they open up and, you know, I, I, you know, we need to get stuff done. And if you say, let's do a check-in, what if one of them says, uh, uh, my son killed himself over the weekend? You know, so that's the fear of empathy is that, well, what if they open up? Well, you can learn things and uh, like what I would coach leaders to say, this is much too important to cheat you out of my undivided attention. And I can't give you my undivided attention right now. But let's set a time when we talk later. And I'm real sorry, and all of us here are sorry. You know, And so there are certain tactics you can learn so that if you feel you're getting in uh, over your head, you can show that caring and uh, uh, and and not feel incompetent. I love that. You know, it's it's Thanksgiving week as we're recording this episode right now. And <clears throat> it reminds me, I'd referred to the incredible leader, Pete November. And I remember during the pandemic, we were on a team call during this week. 
And he said, Michelle, I really want to go around with my executive team and I want to find out their favorite Thanksgiving meal. And it was just one of the best ways to start a meeting because a lot of my leaders will say, well, I'm going to ask a connection question in a one-on-one, but I'm not going to do it in a team meeting. But if you ask a connection question that's applicable to whatever you're going through, whether it's Thanksgiving or whether you're launching a new product or you're starting an innovation center, there's all kinds of right topics that you can have a, a connection question to address and keep it work related. But a question like that then allows everybody on the team to know a little bit about your family traditions and who's alive in your family and who's hosting and your kids and your favorite dishes. And it helps to create create a more cohesive team as well. So I agree with you. I just think it is that meaningful connection and asking those questions are so important, whether it's a 15 minute check-in and you're right, Dr. Mark, leaders say, oh, I'm scared to ask anything personal because they're scared of what the answer might be. But you would want to know if your son or daughter or a family member just took his or her own life. As a leader, you need to know that. And I'll never forget also on that particular call, one of the um, leaders said, well, you know, I'm this bra- I'm a brand new empty nester. My youngest kid just went to college. So this Thanksgiving is so special because I get my family back and it's been really hard. Hard. And Pete said, oh my gosh, I'm an empty nester too. I had no idea. Let's have coffee and talk. Let's console each other. It is hard. So just asking those questions and going a little bit deeper is so important. So thank you for, for talking about that and emphasizing and validating. So if you could wave a magic wand, Dr. Mark, because this is my big seismic question is how do organizations, if you're a leader, how do you create a culture of connection? Do you do it by embedding all of these little, you know, 15 minute times to go really deep, you know, with your really questions or or do you build in a culture of listening and how do you do that? How would you if you could wave a magic wand, how do you build a culture of connection to drive results? Because I believe connection drives results. So I write in a lot of places and I'm writing a lot these days because I'm facing some challenges and, and probably one of the places that I write consistently is I'm one of the founding members of the Newsweek Expert Forum. So if you look look up Newsweek and Goulston, you'll find, I think I have 32 articles now, and they're all different. And uh, one of them is called Three Steps to, uh, to Three Steps to Changing Culture on a Dime. So I believe in making things simple because as soon as things become complex, people just don't follow through. So I think it's three steps to changing culture on a dime. And uh, uh, and here are the three steps. And it's going to put a lot of culture change uh, consulting companies out of business. So uh, I hope this, I hope your business doesn't take a hit with this, Michelle, but I'm going to share this with you and people can look it up. Uh, and here are the three steps. This is what you do as a CEO to your company. And a lot of it is, you know, inspired by Marshall Goldsmith's work, you know, about stakeholders. And, and you say to them, um, you know, if you wake up in the morning and uh, you can put aside, you know, personal issues that are going on in your life, when you think of our company, 
if all of you wake up and say, I can't wait to go to work, we got a good culture. And if you wake up and think, oh, another lousy day, I got to get my resume together, yeah, I feel trapped, we got problems. So here are the three steps. You say, uh, we're going to anonymously collect uh, from you uh, what are three thi positive things that are observable, because we want to check that we're doing them. What are three positive observable things that if we did consistently and three negative things that if we stopped completely uh, would cause you to say, I can't wait to go to work? And we're going to collect them all. We're going to tell you what the most, uh, the most common was. We're going to dedicate ourselves to that. And we're going to tell you, uh, this is what we're going to focus on. These are the positive things. We're going to institute them. And these are the negative things we're going to drop. And we'll be checking in with you every quarter uh, to see how we're doing and what we could do even better and maybe take on some of the other things. And by the way, this is not just a Pollyanna uh, strategy. If you go out and meet your friends and they ask you, how's your company? How's your work? And, you, and if you say to them, I can't wait to go to work. If they don't feel that way about their company, they're going to say, are you hiring? <laughs> so we're actually going to use this way to attract new talent. Plus, it'll change the culture. And you can, and, and if instead of uh, having your HR department just do non-strategic things, non-things that really help the culture, which is why they went into HR, uh, they're going to love doing this. But do you see how simple that would be? Oh, I love it. Absolutely. Whenever I begin doing a 360, I ask questions like, what should the leader start? What should the leader start? If you could stop, start. If you could wave a magic wand, what would you improve? How, you know, tell me about the culture. Absolutely. And, and, and that, that gets buy-in too. So I love how you framed it that you could, when talking to your friends over a beer, you could actually recruit. Um, it also gets buy-in when you ask your people, how are we doing? What could be better? What should we start? What should we stop? It gets them as problem solvers to create a culture that is more positive, And it shows that you care about their opinion. You're listening to them. So accomplishes all of these goals. I want to kind of close out this interview, Dr. Mark. And since this is called the seismic shift and you are facing a seismic shift in your life, could you share with the listeners the seismic shift and, and how that's affected you? Well, I've been diagnosed with a terminal illness. I'm, I'm heading towards acute myeloid leukemia, which uh, is, is the uh, most uh, fatal of the leukemias. And um, I'm going to be going in for a bone marrow transplant, which is like an organ transplant. They're going to radiate my entire body, kill off all my bone marrow. And I'm fortunate that my children matched as donors. So my son, my 34-year-old son is going to be my donor. And that involves getting the transplant, being isolated in the hospital for three weeks to a month because you're starting from scratch. I have to get all my vaccines, childhood vaccines again. And then probably for another four months, uh, I've got to be semi-isolated when I get out. And uh, I'm feeling a little more optimistic. Uh, 
some months ago, but uh, I thought the prognosis was 20% mortality from the procedure because you can get an infection and the IV antibiotics don't work. And 48% survival rate at three years for someone my age, I'm 75. And and I have the best doctor in the world. I have a hematologist. He has 265 five-star patient reviews. He's a unicorn amongst unicorns. It's very important to have that because there was another uh, cancer doctor I saw before him who was very bright but kind of arrogant, and I'd be hesitant to ask him questions. So a team is really important, not just in illness, but in marriage, in your team, in your uh, company. I mean, this has really been uh, uh, drilled into me, and I'm getting interviewed everywhere. Uh, there's a great interview on Harvard Business Review, IdeaCast, because I'm the calmest, most peaceful I've ever been in my life. Uh, and people are curious about that. You know, one of my hosts said, uh, you know, you're the ultimate uh, elephant in the room. And so tell us why you're so peaceful. And I have kind of a weird sense of humor. I, on one of the shows, I said, well, you know, everybody who's ever lived has died. If they can do it, I can do it. <laughs> and and uh, uh, something else uh, that I realize is, and I, and I, this may be lost on people listening, but when I accepted that I might die, and I could, I mean, it's, you know, the, the survival rate is not 48%. I'm told it's 70%. The mortality rate from it is not 20%. It's more like 15% dying during the procedure. But I don't know if you can get this irony, but I, when I just accepted, well, I might die. I mean, my wife told me she'll be okay financially. That was a nice, tearful day of relief. And my kids are launched. Uh, but when I accepted I might die, I was I was able to let go of having to live. And I'm not being negative, but if if I couldn't accept that I might die, you know, which is kind of what I'm facing, uh, and I had to live, I could have driven myself crazy. It's going to play out the way it plays out, and I'm optimistic. And uh, and I, uh, on YouTube, I have a series called I'm Dying to Tell You, Dr. Mark. And I have like 46 episodes, and they're four minutes to 10 minutes, and it's everything I've learned from life over 50 years. And I also have a TikTok uh, channel, I'm Dying to Tell You. Uh, uh, here's one of the, here, the first episode is Michelangelo dying. So hopefully, if you're listening and you don't have to be dying to learn this lesson, Michelangelo said, I saw the angel in the marble and I carved till I set it free. Well, I saw what was important in life in all the stuff that is unimportant. And it's amazing what's unimportant. And I just carved it all off. And what's important oh my goodness. is incredibly clear. And I'll just share this with you because I'm a death and dying specialist. I was a suicide prevention specialist. None of my patients died in 35 years using surgical empathy. But I used to do house calls to dying patients, a number of them leaders. And 
a number of them very successful, but at the end they felt they'd blown it. I remember I saw one who was just this beloved public figure, had a hospital named after him, made many jobs, uh, multiple divorces, trust fund kids, kids on drugs. And and these these people always liked that I could be direct. And I said to him, you know, you look like crap, and I don't think it's because you're dying. You've been dying as long as I've known you. What's going on? <laughs> and he said, uh, I don't think I've ever done anything important in my life. I said, what? And I pointed out all these things, and he, and I, and he said, nope. I, I said, that doesn't help. Not now. And I said, so what's going on? And he looked at me, and he was really a, he was a public figure. He was known. He had this great smile and this kind of wry sense of humor. And he looked at me. He said, I got, all the, I got all the love that money can buy. And everything I thought was unimportant is. And everything I thought was important isn't. And what he was talking about is nobody knows me emotionally. I don't know anybody emotionally. And I would have thought that was a waste of time, but I think I may have blown it. Yeah, you know, my family, I think they know I love them. You know, we go on trips. I pay for everything. You know, they send, I send them off to activities. But I don't think any of them feel seen by me. And I never thought being seen was that important. And I think I might have blown it, and I've run out of time to fix it. So when I used to go on these things, I, I remember saying, as I drive away from these people, I'd say, uh, save that one for a rainy day, Mark. <laughs> wow, that is powerful. I mean, if that's not the seismic shift, right? And so what is the quote you said that you used to be, your life used to be about giving? Can you share that with the audience? what you've learned since your diagnosis? Well, I've always focused on, I guess I'm a thought leader, which is different than a leader. Um, I've always focused on living to give. And now, and I can get a little emotional, but I won't. Well, I give to live right now. Because when I give to live, my cup runneth over. Whereas if I live to take and grab, I'm coming from scarcity. You know, you know, and, and given that I'm facing this, you know, uh, I hope I make it through it. Uh, hope I survive. But, you know, there's a potential for scarcity. And uh, I'll, I'll share something else because Marshall Goldsmith, this is a Marshall Goldsmith story. I've, uh, and one of my videos, uh, I'm dying to tell you, is my personal 700 club. And what's happened is when I talk to people who care about what I'm going through, I sometimes get emotional. But it's not boo-hoo emotional. I just get really open. And uh, and I get embarrassed. I apologize. And these are all men. I think women would get this better than men. And one of the men, I, I apologized. I said, I shouldn't have told you, you know, what I'm going through. 
And he said, this is not a burden. This is a gift. I said, how is it a gift? He said, this is the most emotionally intimate conversation I've ever had. And then another man said, I envy you. I said, what? what? He said, I don't want your illness. You can have your illness. But how open you are, how safe you feel with me, how trusting you are, and I'm not going to slam you. I've never felt that. And what's happening with people, and I have a feeling you're going to say, count me in. They're spontaneously saying 24-7. Marshall Goldsmith said this to me. 24-7. And I'll tell you, these are people that if I approach them with one of my cockamamie business ideas, they'd say, sounds interesting, Mark, but you know, I got too many things that are going. And they're the ones who are volunteering 24-7. I can call them 24-7. I'm not going to call them. Uh, but what I realized is it's not so much they wanted to give this caring to me. They wanted more conversations like this because they're not having them anywhere. Well, I mean, how can you wrap it up any better when we're talking about connection and how important connection is and the return on connection and that connection absolutely drives results. And I think the, the conclusion here, kind of the takeaway is we all have to do a better job of embedding time to meaningfully connect with others so that they're seen, heard, valued, respected, appreciated, because it is just, what did you call it? The antidote to burnout. It's the way, the path to getting meaning in life and feeling satisfaction and fulfillment when maybe you went after the wrong goals. So thank you so much, Dr. Mark, by being vulnerable and courageous. I'm so grateful. And I really, really appreciate your time. Thank you for joining us on The Seismic Shift. And before you go, can I ask one favor of you? Do you mind sharing today's episode with a leader you know? The power of this conversation is found in your using it and sharing it to create real connection in your life. Lastly, I'd like to thank Loyola University, New Orleans and the Terra Firma audio team for helping bring this content to life.